Save the Parents by Bill Lepp, Chapter 17, Starving Orphans in a Store. So, stated Terry when they told her what had happened, now we know we can get hurt in each other's stories. But the worst of it stopped when they pulled me out of the story, explained Mary. Sorry for burning your clothes. Terry waved it off. Don't sweat it. Then how come I didn't get hurt when I hit all those trees in Mary's story, asked Wendell. It is my story as well, Thromon told Wendell gruffly. I think, said Rosie, ignoring Thromon, because you had turned yourself into pure data before you hit the tree. You weren't the person Wendell when you hit the tree. You were, well, whatever it is that the computer uses to make us. I guess you were electronic information. Weird, said Wendell. Plus, added Peter, nobody hit the save command. Then to Mary, I think if we get saved in a story while hurt, we might get stuck with whatever wounds we have. I guess we have learned a few things, Mary concluded. First, if you're about to get hurt, try to turn yourself into electronic information. We should practice that. And second, be careful which words you rest on. I'm still hungry, announced Stephen. Several of the group sighed in agreement. Peter nodded his head. Yeah, it's been a long day, but I guess it isn't over. Who's up for grocery shopping in Terry's story? Sherry said, how much money do we have? Henri pulled a stack of bills from his pocket. Mary pulled two piles of bills from her shoulder bag. Some of the bills were slightly burnt. Clarence's eyes widened. Great, George's ducks, that's the most money we've ever seen. Once we found a $100 bill, remember? Remember that, Sherry? And then you made us give it back to the guy who lost it, and all he gave us was a $10 reward? Oh, my stars and gardenias, Sherry whispered. I've never seen so much money. May I? Henri handed her the stack of hundreds he was holding. You can have it, Sherry. No, I couldn't, she said. Clarence came over, touched the money. Can I have it? Sure, you can each have a stack. Clarence, shouted Sherry. You may not ask that. It's rude. Henri smiled. Really? Take it. Besides, I'm loaded. Sherry, why don't you lead the shopping expedition? Peter suggested. You, me, and Terry will hit the store. You can buy anything your hungry orphan heart desires. Sherry laughed. Wow, I mean, that never happens in our story. We're all the time saying, oh, if I were rich, I would buy, and then we all describe a feast that we would purchase. Can I come too? asked Clarence. Sure, Terry suggested. Well, Sherry said meekly, we can hardly leave Stephen and Candy out. All right, agreed Peter. Awake the hungry little hippos. Clarence and Stephen each pushed a shopping cart. Sherry put Candy in the seat of another cart, but Candy threw a fit. She wanted to be free to grab whatever she desired. Peter was afraid the feral band would cause a ruckus, especially Stephen and Clarence. Those two barbarians hardly passed anything on the shelves they didn't fling into their carts. Canned hams, marshmallows, marmalade, coffee cakes, soda, turkeys, donuts, cheese, ice cream, cans of stew, bags of white sugar and brown, hamburger, bacon, cereal, mayonnaise, peanut butter. It all flew in with clatters and clangs audible for aisles and aisles. Peter was afraid the staff would tell them to quit goofing off, to put everything back. He was also afraid that the other patrons might get snippy, but nobody even cast a second glance. I guess everybody in the store is basically here just to fill space. I'm not sure they have brains, Peter said quietly to Terry. Now that I think about it, Terry said, every time I come in here, it's the same people. It's like they're hollow. It's kind of sad. Peter nodded. They're just taking up space to give the reader a more realistic image of store. If we looked at the text, it would probably say something like, there were several people in the store. I doubt your author has put much thought into who they are. When my author writes things like, the stadium was packed full of people eager to watch monkeys play pinochle, she can't possibly give all those people personalities and brains. Most of those people are just empty words. They are there simply because the author needs a stadium full of people. What happens to these people when we crash the file around them? asked Terry. 
I think, Peter said, they keep on living. I think, and I don't know, but I think we destroy the file, but not the world. I hate to think that we collapse the actual structure of the world. I don't want to create a bunch of apocalypses. I'd hate to think that we killed Arnold the rabbit. But again, the physical words are solely symbols for their ideas. It's the meaning of the words that build the stories. And once the words are strung together, I don't think we can entirely unstring the image they create. Now that I know these people are more or less empty shells, they're kind of creepy, Terry whispered. Peter watched an old guy in a plaid shirt make his way down the aisle. These people are only a few words or thoughts away from being like you and me. But right now they're sort of like zombies. And a zombie character is about the only character we lack to have a genuine young adult novel. Let's leave the zombies out, Terry said with a chuckle. Agreed, agreed Peter. Save the Parents by Bill Lepp. Chapter 18. Jane steps out. Everything was fine till it came time to pay. Peter had talked the boys into putting most of what they had pulled from the shelves back, but they still had plenty, reasoning that they could only carry so much and that they could always come back later, especially the whole turkeys. They didn't have any way to cook whole turkeys. Still in all, they had a considerable pile of goods. Candy, Stephen, and Clarence giggled and clapped while the cashier rang up the purchase. They snatched candy bars and packs of gum from the racks beside the checkout counter and tossed them onto the conveyor belt. Several cans of pop rolled across the floor. Peter braced himself for a soda explosion. The bagger bagged the groceries as if nothing abnormal was transpiring. The cashier said, That'll be $287.64. Sherry reached proudly into her pocket and pulled out a huge bundle of bills. The cashier raised an eyebrow. Peter tilted his head. He had pretty well convinced himself that all the people in the store had no personalities, no thought or emotions. He wasn't even positive why he, Terry, and the orphans were bothering to check out at all. They could have steered the carts behind the words without a second thought. That, however, would have denied the orphans the triumph of living their dream of mostly buying whatever they desired. Peter kept his eyes on the cashier. Sherry took three of the bills and handed them to the cashier. Peter realized at that moment that the bubble was about to burst. The portrait of Ben Franklin on the bills was huge. Peter whispered, Shoot, Terry, what year did you say it is in your story? 1993, last time I checked. Why? The cashier took the bills, looked them over, and then said to Sherry, What's this, honey? Money, Sherry answered uneasily. She'd never had much money, and now that she did have money, there seemed to be something wrong with it. Clarence was frowning. He'd been looking forward to filling himself to the gills for once in his life. Baby girl, the cashier said, this money has Ben Franklin's picture on it, and it says United States of America, but this ain't like no money I've ever seen. But, Sherry started, pleading to Peter with her eyes. And where'd you get all that money anyway, the cashier asked. She looked toward a man in a tie and nodded him over. Peter figured he was the manager. Even if the guy didn't have much character development, by creating him as the manager, Terry's author invested a certain amount of authority in the guy. Presumption again. The reader would expect certain attributes to be exhibited by a character called manager, and thus those attributes were imbued in the word. Peter said softly to Terry, They've changed the money, the design on the bills, several times since the 1990s. In your story, Andre's money is from the future. It looks different from money in your time period, and the date is way wrong. What do we do? asked Terry. Do these people know you? Terry looked around. I don't recognize anybody. The manager and the cashier were having a quiet conversation. The cashier kept showing the manager the bills. The manager kept glancing at Sherry. Sherry was pale and looked exceptionally guilty. Peter said to the group, mm, This could be bad. 
What could be bad? Clarence asked, and I'll explain it later. We can just walk out of the story if they put us in jail, right, Peter? Little Stephen asked. Maybe. Probably. Some words are stronger than others. Some words can hold you. Some words can trap you. I don't know how powerful the word jail is. I think we might be better off if we just run for it. Run for it? asked Sherry. When I say now, Peter whispered urgently, grab some groceries and slide into the words. But that's stealing, Sherry protested. What's happening? It's better than starving, Clarence argued. Besides, we tried to pay. The children moved closer to the bags of groceries. The manager picked up a phone. Now, Peter commanded. Each of them grabbed as much as they could carry and slipped out of the store and into the words behind it. Hey, they heard the manager shout as they disappeared. When they emerged into the words, they found the cashier leaning on the word register. She was holding several bags of groceries. You forgot these, kids. Holy, what the, Peter said, startled and baffled. The cashier grinned. Her eyes were kind. And I thought I was the only one who'd figured out the words was back here. I stand at that register all day long. Half the time I stare off into the distance. One day, my eyes sort of went out of focus and there was the words. Do you think your manager or the police will come through? I told you. I think I'm the only one that knows the words are there. The kids stared at the cashier. The cashier stared at the kids. Finally, Clarence carefully reached out and took the bag she was offering. Thanks, he said. She asked, what was that funny money y'all was trying to give me? Peter said, this might sound crazy, but it's from the future. Well, where it comes from, it was from the present, but in here, it's from the future. He was right. It sounded absolutely crazy. He was sorry he said it. Sweetheart, the cashier said, after I learned that I could step out of my world and into a mess of words, I have a whole new view of what seems crazy. Truth is, I thought I was crazy. Y'all sure you ain't just figures in my head? No, ma'am, Peter said. We're not in your head. He didn't want to say any more. He wasn't sure how many people he wanted to know his secret plans. Well, yeah, he was sure, as few as possible. Their plans could leak out and be frustrated if too many people knew. On the other hand, Peter wondered if it was fair to keep people in the dark concerning their true identities. Human people, real people, were always wondering why they existed, what their purpose in life was. Peter knew this because his author and her friends never tired of prattling on about the meaning of life. Scribble's friends were all artists and writers. Peter was a character in a book, but at least he knew why he existed and what his purpose was. Was it fair to keep that information from other characters and other stories? He did lighten Terry and the other kids, after all. If Peter allowed himself to change a story for the good of one character, the change would affect all the other characters. But then, many of the other characters only existed so the main characters would have people to interact with. Did that make their lives less important? It was very confusing. So, the cashier made a come-on gesture with her hands. Tell me what's going on. May I ask, Terry said, what your name is? Jane, said the cashier impatiently, like it says on my name tag. Now, out with it, children. Jane was much older than the kids. Peter guessed she was like 40. She was average looking in her work uniform, but there were hints of real beauty in the lines of her face and in the way she carried herself. She didn't have the blank, somewhat lifeless face of a character created simply to fill space. She was smart, too. She'd seen into the words. Odd. He didn't mistrust her. It was more that he had a notion that her author didn't know exactly what to do with her. Characters like that were unpredictable. Wild cards. Look, Peter tried. If I asked you nicely, would you slide back into your world? Are you kidding? 
All I ever do is stand there at that cash register. I don't have a very exciting life. Like everybody, I dream of something more for myself. Then you kids come along, you have a bunch of funny money, you're buying enough food for an army, and you can slip into the words. Do you really think I'd waltz back into my world when your world seems so much more exciting? Yep, she was smart. Peter wondered why the author of Terry's story had given the cashier such an active mind. Main characters and important supporting characters received the brains, Peter knew from long experience. The author spent more time thinking through the more important characters, and the more the author focused on a character, Peter assumed, the more that character grew. That was because the more a character was being thought, the more time a character had to rattle around the author's head, gleaning information. Plus, authors need to make their main characters as real as possible. A lot of times, Peter's author would read something in a book or see something on the internet and think, I wonder how Peter would react to that. When Peter's author imagined Peter in some new experience at the same time, Peter learned about that situation. His author had had him run through some pretty outrageous antics. Once, he had fed avocados to penguins while surfing the Drake Straits. Authors did batty stuff to characters because they could. But why was Terry's author thinking so much about this cashier? Peter asked, Terry, does Jane play a large role in your story? He looked at Jane and said, I hope you aren't offended by all this, but I need to know some things about you. Terry wrinkled her nose as she searched her memory. Uh, no. As I said, I don't recall Miss Jane at all. All I know is that there are cashiers in the stores. She, obviously, is one of them. Peter asked, There aren't any mysterious people in your story, right, Terry? People following you around, skulking behind trees. Evil Aunt Belinda, but she didn't skulk. She prods and barges. Are you saying, Jane protested, that I'm a spy or a sneak? Sweetie, I don't do nothing but stand at that cash register. Clarence looked confused. You mean you never leave the store? Jane shook her head. All I do is stay in that grocery store, except every now and again I get all funny feeling. I get dizzy, and then I feel like I'm being sucked into a new world. But then I'm back at the register. That's when our author is thinking about us, Terry explained, somewhat puzzled. We don't have a home either, Clarence stated, pointing at his siblings. Your author gave you nothing but a place to be, Shrey muttered, and our author gave us no particular place to be, except hungry. Jane gave the orphans a long look. I'm beginning to not like authors. Join the gang, Peter snorted. So, am I in? Jane asked. Peter looked at the other members of the group. Terry nodded. Sherry did too. Clarence shrugged. We can't very well leave her here. Guess we ought to let her in on it. Peter hafted the grocery bags he was holding. Follow us, Miss Jane, down the rabbit hole, and I'll explain on the way. Holy smokes, Jane said as they came to the edge of the words. Prepare to step out of your story, Peter warned. Wait, Terry noted. We have the food, but nothing to eat it with. Would it be too dangerous if I slip back into the story and grab some plates and silverware? I think it'll be okay, especially if you enter the story upward of the store, Peter said. Get some matches and something to burn, too, like a bunch of paper and some wood, and sleeping bags for the little ones, Sherry suggested. If it isn't too much to ask, I hadn't thought of that, Peter admitted. You, smiled Sherry, haven't spent your life living as a hobo in shacks and boxcars. I'll help you carry it all, volunteered Clarence. Bag in a flash, said Terry. And they were. Save the Parents by Bill Epp, Chapter 19. What to do next? First, announced Peter to the crew, meet Jane. She slipped out of Terry's story and has decided to join us. Peter briefly explained the circumstances. Sherry took the matches, scraps of wood, and old newspapers that Terry had scrounged. The eldest orphan had built plenty of campfires in her time. What amazes me, 
remarked Henri, is that you guys are orphans who live in shacks and under trees. You're always hungry and out in the elements, and yet you never get dirty. If I lived outside, I imagine I would at the very least have greasy hair. Huh, that is odd. I can't say it ever crossed my mind, smiled Sherry. I guess her author is a neat freak and imagines us clean all the time. She must figure that when we aren't searching for food or a warm place to sleep, that we're standing under a hot shower. After the meal, Stephen and Candy nestled in the sleeping bags the crew had brought over from Terry's stories. The little ones promptly fell asleep. Mary, Rosie, Terry, Jane, Sherry, Henri, Wendell, Clarence, Thromon, and Peter sat in a circle around the fire. Won't the author see the smoke rising up from the keyboard or something? asked Wendell. Rosie laughed. Eh, it's not real smoke. Well, no more real than the smoke in a video game. But that's the nice thing. We're all virtual characters, so we can eat virtual food, and virtual food can be cooked on a virtual fire with virtual smoke. But don't touch the flames. You're created from essentially the same code as the fire, so it would probably burn you. Peter explained to Jane as best he could what they were up to. It took a while to paraphrase all the stories. So, you fixed Wendell's and Rosie's stories, Jane nodded, but you still need to do something with Henri's story, Terry's story, the orphan's misfortunes, and the assassination of Marion Thromont's father? Uh, yeah, we have our work cut out for us, acknowledged Peter. Of course, Jane added, Terry's story is my story, too. Terry shrugged. Nothing to it. Evil Aunt Belinda and her cattle-prodded elephants? How hard can that be to foil? I wouldn't mind being an elephant keeper, said Jane. Be better than being a cashier. Clarence giggled. Be a lot easier to sweep up as a cashier than as an elephant trainer. Wait a minute, Wendell yelled. Hold on a bleeding second. Mary, throw on. I was thinking. Back when we were in your story, you kept saying stuff like, Our father will be killed. Or, We'll gather a fearless group of loyal youth together so that we may avenge his death. So, barked Thromon. So, asked Wendell. So, that's all future tense. Is he dead yet? Yes, but not the whole time. He gets killed in the first few sentences, said Mary. I'm sorry if we weren't clear. He's alive for a short time. Well, well, surmised Henri. That makes a difference, doesn't it? How so, vampire, grumbled Thromon. Well, maybe we can talk to him before the ambush, said Clarence. Or you can. Does he know that there's a traitor? Do you ever speak to your father in your story? Terry asked. Mary considered for a moment. She shook her head. I guess not. I have memories of my father, but I guess they're only that. My memories are things our author wrote into us. I guess I never really interacted with my father. I know what he looks like. I have memories of being with him in the past, but not in the story. There's bound to be a way, Peter said. Maybe we can use the memories you have of your father. Fromont stood, stomped his foot, and again proclaimed, When my father is killed, I will visit revenge on his killers and assume the throne. Right, said Henri. You said that before. But if we can stop him from getting killed in the first place, then you won't have to avenge his death. That seems easy enough, Peter said. I mean, why not delete everything in the file that has to do with the ambush or his death? If we delete all that, then we're done. My mother died in childbirth, said Mary. It would be nice to actually meet my father. Her eyes filled with tears. Hold on, urged Clarence. He's alive, but you've never met him? Mary wiped her cheeks. As I said, I have memories of him, so maybe I met him, but I've never personally interacted with him. He gets killed right off, and then Thromon and I get introduced into the story. He dies before we come into the story. Henri put his arm around Mary's shoulders. It's a terrible thing to have happen, Peter commiserated. It's why I hate the authors. Everyone was quiet. We're trying to make our stories happy, Clarence told Jane. Yeah, we are, Peter said. That's my mission. 
Henri squeezed Mary's shoulders and then scanned the group. He asked, Are we trying to make the stories happy or more real? What do you mean? Peter asked. I mean, explained Henri, I agree that being raised by bunnies or having your parents killed by rabid dolphins is unreal, outrageous, but but we're made up, Terry interrupted. We're not like the real people who read us. Somebody invented our stories. Why shouldn't we be allowed to manipulate the situations? We are real, Peter said again. As soon as they think us up, we're real. All I'm saying, Henri continued, is that there is outrageous and there is realistic, right? I mean, I guess nobody's life is perfect, but that doesn't mean nobody's life is happy. In my story, I'm trying to be normal. But you're trying to be normal so you can be happy, argued Peter. Maybe, or maybe I just want to be satisfied instead of full-blown happy, countered Henri. Isn't that the same thing? Several of the children looked at Jane. Look, honey, I may be an adult, but that don't mean I know anything. I've tried to tell you, all I do is stand behind a register. Adults are not more normal than kids. We sure ain't happier. I think we realize everybody has their flaws, and we're trying to be forgiven, or at least accepting. I agree with Henri. If you can't get all the way to happy, satisfied is a dandy goal. Sherry snorted. Adults sure never did me and mine any good. My whole life, Mary whispered, my mother has been dead. That's what I'm always saying and thinking of my story. My writers made me wonder sometimes what it would be like to have a mother, but my life isn't ruined because I don't have a mother. Peter hadn't considered that aspect. He spent the majority of the pages of his life trying to avoid, find, or kill the man in the dark purple cloak because he had killed Peter's parents. Peter's parents had been dead since he was an infant. He had an idea what it was like to have parents because most everybody he knew had parents. But was his life ruined because he didn't have a mother or father? Ruined, he asked himself. No. Less pleasant? Probably. But what angered Peter was not the fact that he didn't get the chance to grow up with his parents. What angered Peter was the fact that his author had deliberately killed his parents to make Peter vulnerable to and wrathful toward the man in the dark purple cloak. Do you want to modify the fact that your mother died? Honoré asked Mary. Mary shrugged. I don't know. I guess I should, but I've managed without her. What matters, Thromon said, is that our father is murdered. We are obliged to avenge his death. But he doesn't need to die. Instead of speaking of avenging his death, maybe you should talk of saving his life. All this talk, Thromon yelled. We need to do something. He stalked off across the hard drive. Why is he in such a snit, Clarence asked. He gets like this, Mary explained. Let him be. But we need him to help work out a plan, Wendell noted. We can fix somebody else's story first, Mary proposed. Well, Sherry said softly, the little ones are asleep. I suppose we could all rest for a while and then get started on someone's story in the morning, or whatever time you call it on a hard drive when you wake up. And so, the members of the crew that needed or desired sleep slept. Those who did not need sleep stood as still as characters do in an unread book.